morning, church. Wonderful to see all of your joyous faces. Would you stand as we read our scripture together this morning? We're going to have two passages of scripture. Our first is from Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. Now hear God's word. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. Our second reading comes from Luke chapter 1 verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations shall call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me and his holy, holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, a few weeks ago, I was invited to attend the Disney Candlelight concert, and it was really extraordinary because, and I didn't know this was the name, but the Lake Avenue Church Sanctuary Choir was there as one amongst the many choirs who were singing, yeah. And their voices were the best, clearly. And it was an amazing night. I honestly thought it was gonna be, it was totally different than what I expected. I thought it was gonna be 95% jingle bells and then a little bit of the sacred repertoire, but it was just the opposite. It was a full presentation of the Christmas story. It was all sacred music. There was scripture that was read. The mystery of the incarnation was dropped onto Disneyland. And there were thousands of people there listening and taking it in and it was an extraordinary, beautiful moment. And yet, at the same time, there was this very strange, unsettling tension that I felt. Because while it was beautiful and the gospel was being proclaimed, at the same time, there's a reality that most of the people who are hearing have no idea who this Savior is. And then thinking about 
our country and our world and thinking about the, the, the conflicts, the tensions, the distress, the despair that's unfolding all around us. On the one hand, there's this message of Christian hope and coming salvation, and we're hearing it. And then there's the reality of the shadow side. It reminds me of the tension that was there, reminds me of the psalmist who says, how long, O Lord? How long? I think during this season of Advent, we sit with this tension. It's uncomfortable. We sing joy to the world. Oh, come Emmanuel. We sing and we, and we hope and we feel that. And then we feel the tug and the pull and the reality of the shadow side. And, and, and out of that, I think, can come this deep longing that we have for something. For a vision, perhaps, to see God bring about restoration. Finally, finally, once and for all, when will it come? How long, O oh Lord? What we do with that longing, with that tension, is very important. Because what we do with it can either lead to languishing or flourishing. Now, the people of God long felt this tension. This tension of how long, O Lord? They long felt this tension, and we hear this from from Isaiah. The people of God had long been in a place of exile. Even though they had returned, they were still in a place of perpetual exile. And that is because even though they had returned to their own land, they existed under the occupation of other brutal Merciless, calloused rulers and nations. Persia, Greece, Rome. They're home, but they're in exile. They're in perpetual exile. They're they're home, but they're not free. How long, O Lord? But Israel had a promise. And that promise was given by one of their poet prophets, Isaiah, that one day a savior would come And out of their devastated existence, an existence that probably felt like a field of trees that had been axed down and was just a devastated plain of stumps, that out of that existence, the promise was a shoot, a little shoot would come up from the stump of Jesse. And it would become like a branch growing out of his roots. And this branch will be a righteous prophet, a priest, a king, a messiah. And rather than being driven by the spirit of the age with brutality and callousness and triumphalism, this king would be driven and would have the spirit of the Lord resting upon him. Rather than having the disease of megalomania and self-confident pride, he would be a king that will rule with a spirit of wisdom and understanding. And rather than ruling with tyranny and dominance, he will rule with the spirit of counsel and might and the knowledge and the fear 
of the Lord. And rather than desiring his own pleasure and power, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, which is to be fixated with such awe and adoration that you are gripped with a sense of delight in knowing that God can only do what God can do. And then the prophet goes on to tell us that the effect of this newly ordered kingdom will be dramatic. It will be unlike anything the world has ever seen because in that change, in this newly ordered kingdom, power, power, both in nature and culture, will be completely overturned and reordered. And he goes on to describe it like the lion will lay with the lamb. Children will even dance over the, the, the holes of where snakes are. It will be a whole new kind of existence, a whole new order to things. But Israel is wondering how long. They're still in perpetual exile, even up to the time of Christ. What they hope for, what they long for, is probably similar to what we hope for and what we long for, and that's a grand reversal of our deeply ordered existence, disordered existence. We hope we long for a maximal change in the vision of God's saving presence in our lives because, let's be honest, we can't see it. It's hard to see it. We live in this tension because we are in the time between the now and the not yet. We are moving from Eden to a city. But it's really tense right here in the middle. Christ has come and Christ is coming, but the fulfillment of what Christ will bring in the redemption and restoration of all things is not yet here. But we have the hope, we have the tension. We are in the now and the not yet. We need a change to our vision. Now, one of the things that I love about fiction narratives, stories, in film or literature, is tension. I love it there. I love it in art. I don't really love it in my own life. When I was studying literature at UC Irvine, I was, I was in a class on revenge tragedy. And one of the the literary devices that's used in revenge tragedies to bring about a complete shift in the state of the narrative and the tension is irony. Irony is a literary device that is used to bring about a reversal, a dramatic change to the state of affairs that are going on inside of a story. And irony is one of those kind of strange things because it's a little bit hard to define. It's actually very hard to define. There's verbal irony that happens between a couple people in a communication event, and then there's situational irony, which has to do with acts and actions and states of affairs, and that's a little bit harder to define, but irony is one of those things where we know it when we see it, but if we're asked to describe it, it's very difficult to 
explain. One writer says it's something like when the pickpocketer gets pickpocketed. But irony is, is a fascinating concept because often it's, the, it's the, vehicle, the vehicle that the author or the writer will use to bring about a change or a release to that tension. And there's, there's really two elements that seem to be consistent in most definitions or most appearances of irony. On the one hand, it's that there's some kind of dramatic reversal, as I had mentioned. On the other hand, there is this unexpected, un, uh, unpredictable unity of contrarieties or incongruities. And so this, this idea of irony happening, it, it sort of brings excitement into a story because you're, you're, you're moving along and you're seeing things unfold and then all of a sudden this complete reversal that's unexpected and unpredictable occurs and it changes all the states of, of affairs and you're, you're, you're shocked and you, you find yourself moving from one platform of understanding to another, from one perspective to another perspective and you begin to see the whole situation even backwards and behind it differently because of this ironic reversal that has occurred. And, and, and when I started to explore this in literature, it got me thinking, of course, immediately about irony in scripture. Is there divine irony? Does God do ironic things in the world? And I think if you look across the story of scripture, there are countless examples of it. A few come to mind when Joseph is thrown away by his brothers. And then after so much difficulty, he finds himself in Egypt and, and even through trials and temptations, he ascends to a place of authority and then there's a famine and guess who shows up? Looking for food, his brothers. And at the moment of discovery, they weep, and, and he could have easily thrown them away. But instead, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Irony. When Israel is coming out of Egypt, God parts the waters of the Red Sea. They go through, they find liberation, and then God uses those same waters to drown the enemies that come after them. And then, of course, we come to the, the cross. Here's a tree, a good gift of creation given to you that you would make stuff with the stuff of the world. Thank you very much. We will make an execution device out of that tree, and we will put you on it. And so God loves us even when we try to kill him and dies for his executioners. Irony. I've tried to come up with a definition of it. I think divine irony is something like this. It is an act of God that generates an unexpected and unpredictable unity of contrarieties as the perfectly necessary response to the predicament at hand. It's a good one, right? In other words, I think divine irony is something like this. 
It's when God flips the script. It's when God creates a grand redemptive reversal out of the mess that we have made. Divine irony is like a narrative can opener dive. You know what I'm talking about? You ever seen somebody do a can opener into a pool? It's like there's, the person goes into the water and there's this splash, but then there's this second unexpected huge splash and it like juts across the pool and all the people sitting over on the other side get nailed by it and they weren't expecting it. That's kind of what happens when, when, when divine irony is unfolded across the narrative of scripture. It's like a, it's like a can opener splash. But boom, you didn't see it coming. And there's this explosive reversal that occurs. And, and so as we turn to our gospel story, I think there we see a dazzling image of divine irony. When the angel comes to Mary and reveals to her that God is going to conceive in her little body the infinite God, the long-awaited Savior, the repairer of that Davidic kingdom that has fallen so far. In that annunciation, she's getting the first glimpse of God's grand, ironic, magnificent reversal of her people's perpetual exile and ours too. And I love Mary's response. Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. I love that response because it demonstrates that Mary does not see herself as the central actor in her own story, but she sees herself as a participant in God's larger story of redemption. Mary is not the central actor in her ego drama. She is a participant in God's theodrama, and when that occurs, it changes the way you begin to see things. And this is why she is then filled with such joy. So she makes a beeline over to Elizabeth's house because she knows that God is revealing something to her that is a fulfillment of that prophecy from that poet prophet, Isaiah. And so she goes over to, to tell, to share the news. And what happens when she comes? There's a greeting, and Elizabeth, she, she says she felt her child jump in her womb. And she says, who, who, is, who are you that my Lord would come to me? Because she is being exposed and revealed at that moment that the Holy Spirit is telling her that God has bringing about this magnificent reversal. So she does what we would expect you to do when you get a word like this about this magnificent reversal, she breaks out into this song. And it's a wild celebratory song. It's a clapping, foot-stomping song. It's a, it's a ballad. It's, it's a presentation of the gospel before the gospel because in the face of Herod's calloused brutality backed by Roman power, this song dramatically announces that God in Jesus is going to begin a long, enduring work of dropping a heavenly can opener on the disordered powers of this world to set it right and to bring salvation, and it will be a foreshadowing of his death and his resurrection and his salvation, which is to come. 
There are a few themes in this song that I want to pay attention to. The first is magnification. Megalune in Greek. My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul reflects. It announces. It proclaims. It is an enlargement of God's wonder and awe and beauty. And then she says, all generations will call me blessed. This is not a statement of pride. It is a recognition. It is a reflection that Mary understands that she is more ecstatic about being a part of God's larger story of salvation than being the central actor in her own. And because of that, God brings about an ironic, magnificent reversal to her story that through this miraculous birth, her lowliness will be met with favor and all generations will call her blessed. The point here is this. When we begin to move away from needing to be the center of our own stories, and when we begin to realize that the point of our lives is to participate in God's larger story of redemption, ironically, something about our lives and something about our stories gets magnified by God. But when this happens, it won't, it shouldn't inflate our egos, but rather, it will cause our greatest joy to be that Christ's presence would shine and be made known in the world. Joy. Joy is a strange concept. It's not that frivolous happiness and fulfillment that we might want to think it is. C.S. Lewis described joy like this. Joy is distinct not only from pleasure in general, but even from aesthetic pleasure. It must have a stab, pang, of the inconsolable longing. He says, all joy reminds, it is never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or further away still about to be. In Surprised by Joy, he really, he really defines Joy as this deep longing for Christ himself. That, that will sustain you. That kind of joy, that kind of desire will move you away from languishing towards flourishing in the middle of the tension. In the second part of the song, it is important to take note that God is the subject of the powerful verbs that Mary uses. He has shown strength with his arm. God, God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good riches and sent them away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. God is the actor here. 
It's tempting to want to look at this story and, and, and think this is a call to human action for revolution. This is where we take the revolution into our hands. This is where we bring about the reversal that needs to come into this world. It is not that kind of a call. It is a celebration of God's action. This song is a joyful shout that this act of conception has set in motion the decisive cosmic saving work of God. And it is an invitation to us, like it was to Mary, to participate in God's redemptive work, to be called into it, to begin to be people who can see those ironic, magnificent reversals occurring in the muck, in the mire of our broken world. In 2013, I was traveling and I was in Norway. I was there with some other Fuller PhD students. We were doing a special class that was combined with some students from this Norwegian seminary. And it was a class on the church and the spirit. We were there for a couple weeks and we learned all sorts of amazing things and read great books and talked to great scholars and all the rest. And, and I'm, the day that I'm supposed to leave, I'm out at the bus stop near the hotel and I'm waiting there for the bus and the bus comes and I get on the bus and I'm driving to the airport, it's a nice sunny morning in Oslo, get to the airport, check in and I realize I left my backpack at the bus stop which had in it my computer, my money, my wallet, my passport. Oh, how long, oh Lord? Now, it was like a 20 minute ride from the bus stop to the airport. So I tell my group like, I can't even, you know, get get on the plane, obviously, so I'm going to have to get back on the bus and go to the bus stop and try to, you know, and I've never had this sort of thing happen, so I'm thinking, do I need to try to contact the embassy? I mean, what do I do if I can't find it? And on the way back, I start getting into that acute state of despair. Perhaps you know about this state of despair where you're like, God, please let it be there, but you, you're also, the louder voice is, it's not going to be there. It's not going to be there because that's the way the world is, because sin abounds, because people are evil, because somebody's going to see it sitting there, and they're going to open it up, they're going to see my smiley face in there, and the cash, and they're going to, oh, look, take this, you know, it's, it's good to go, and they're going to have a great weekend, and here I am sitting at the embassy, desperately trying to figure out how to get back to America. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of playing that whole narrative over in my head, and 20 minutes go by, and, and uh, we get to the, the bus stop, and I step off the bus, and I walk around the front, and I see that not only is my bag still there, but it's being held by this lovely silver-haired grandmother. And, and she looks at me, and she goes, 
this is yours, isn't it? And I say, yes. And she said, I, I came to the bus stop and I saw it sitting here and I, I, I looked inside and I saw your computer and your passport and all that and I realized this is really not good. So I thought I would just sit here and wait for you to come back. Now, the point of that story is not so much that God created this magnificent reversal in my life, although that was truly one of those things. But I remember riding on the bus back to the airport, and I remember thinking, you know, the funny thing about this whole class on the church and the spirit, the greatest lesson I learned happened on the bus ride to the airport home and back. That, that God is doing things we can't see. God is lurking across all of the spaces and places of our creation. God is lurking in all the shadowy areas of your life. God is doing things. God is bringing about magnificent reversals into our world and into your life specifically that you can't always see. And so sometimes we just need to open up our eyes in the silence of listening to the Holy Spirit and maybe get a glimpse of the magnificent reversals that God wants to bring into your life. I'm gonna end with this word from a poet, John Milton. John Milton is my favorite poet. He wrote a poem called Paradise Lost. And just to say a brief word about it, it's, it's really a poem about the first three chapters of Genesis, Adam and Eve's creation and fall. And he takes those three chapters and he expands it into a 10,000 line poem. Because he wants to imagine, what was it like? What did they say? What did they do? How did they, did they talk to each other? And so he adds a lot of things, obviously, that are not in the Bible. And after Adam and Eve fall, Michael, this archangel, comes and causes Adam to fall asleep. And then he takes him by the power of the Spirit on this little journey. And he shows him all of the things that are going to happen in history, the devastation that will follow because of their disobedience. And it's a hard set of poetic lines to read until you get to the very end. Because then, in light of Christ, Adam sees a magnificent reversal. And so here's that part from Paradise Lost. Book 12. Michael says, For then the earth shall be a paradise. This is after the redemption of Christ. It will be a far happier place than this Eden, and far happier days. And then Adam, almost like Mary, Oh goodness infinite, oh goodness immense that all this good of evil shall produce and evil turn to good more wonderful 
than that by which creation first brought forth light out of darkness, full of doubt I stand. Whether I should repent me now of sin by me done and occasioned, or rejoice much more, that much more good thereof shall spring to God more glory, more goodwill to men from God and over wrath, grace shall abound. That is the magnificent reversal. A magnificent reversal that has come. A magnificent reversal is coming. And this is the joy set before us. Let us pray. God, we take a moment to rest in silence, to listen for your word. Show us, show us, saving God, how you are reversing things in our lives. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the glory of your love and grace which abounds for us and for the creation. Amen.